Hello and welcome aboard this island nation, the Maritime Programme. Tom McSweeney here with a programme about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. On this edition, a marine photographer sees an unusual phenomenon. It was the first time I've ever seen and the last time I've ever seen this, Tom. I was below in Valley Cronin, it's beach in East Cork. And the, the tide was coming in slowly and the water started to creep along the sand like oil. It was the first time I've ever got a reflection of the clouds actually on the water. Normally you'll get it on the sand when the water retreats. But this is the first time I've ever seen this and I thought it was fascinating. I took it and I've uh, been looking to see it ever since and I haven't seen it. It's a most unusual phenomenon. And an Irish sailor at the top of the international sailing world is blunt about removing plastic from the sport. Single-use plastics, for instance, has no place anymore in our sport on board or in the yacht club, so that should be just kicked straight out of the door. There's no need to have a discussion around that. It just needs to be actioned. This Island Nation is Ireland's maritime radio show, a reflective programme about the sea coming to you from the studios of CRY 104FM in Yol on the East Cork coastline and bringing together through the community radio network the maritime community around Ireland. In our last edition, we discussed microplastics in the marine environment with Professor Marcel Janssen of University College Cork, who said he'd found that microplastics were everywhere during research into how human activity puts them into fresh water from where they enter the general marine environment. Irish Sailing is the national representative body for the sport of sailing and has appointed Damien Foxall, one of the world's top professional yacht sailors, as its sustainability ambassador. From Kerry, he sailed in 10 round-the-world races and won top international honours. He was sustainability manager aboard Vestas 11th Hour Racing in last year's Volvo World Race and describes himself as a passionate ocean conservationist. At the Irish Sailing Conference held at Lockery Yacht Club in Athlone, he told Inor Setrakovic of Athlone Community Radio what he'll be doing in his new role. This is a very timely when we see the Irish Sailing Association taking on sustainability and developing a specific programme around how we can integrate sustainability and best practices throughout our whole sport. The UN Commission for Climate Change has designated specific uh, guidelines for sports in general and the International Olympic Committee likewise are um, going to be rolling out guidelines for all the sports, sailing included, and we need to continue our role as leaders across sports um, in terms of operating in a sustainable way and promoting ocean health and sustainability for sport in general. So. This is really timely and it's fantastic to see the Irish Sailing Association putting this into place. So I have an amazing opportunity to uh, be ambassador for this programme 
and we're going to start rolling that out this year in Ireland. Uh, by the time we get to the November, I believe, we're going to have specific um, guidelines for yacht clubs from World Sailing, which is the international uh, world body for, for our sport. Uh, in the meantime, we are promoting for all of our athletes and our teams and our yacht clubs and sailing clubs and sailing organizations around the country to get on board. First step really is to designate a sustainability officer because without that nothing happens so you need to uh, just like you might have a rear commodore and treasurer in a yacht club or someone who coordinates the team for the you know the, your sailing team or if you've got if it's a family operation someone who really is going to be passionate and takes on the uh, the responsibility to define what is important uh, for whatever 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 operation you're doing so if you're a mum and dad who are driving their kids around the country to various regattas or whether it's a larger keelboat team that may be getting ready for the round Ireland or maybe one of the smaller larger yacht clubs around the country the next step would be then to define the scope of your operations, to do an audit basically and define, okay, what are we responsible for? We have a yacht club building, we have a marina, we have members who are coming in. These are the operations that we're responsible for and we need to, then the, the next step would be to define, you know, how can we improve um, our footprints, um, whether they're waste, greenhouse gas emissions, um, uh, water footprints with regards to our operations. So uh, are we driving around the country uh, a lot? How can we car share um, our energy efficiencies within the infrastructure, whether it's the Yacht Club, whether we really optimized um, in terms of energy? Um, Single-use plastics, for instance, has no place anymore in our sport on board or in the yacht club so that should be just kicked straight out of the door there's no need to have a discussion around that it just needs to be actioned and so there's many low-hanging fruits like that that are easy to get going on straight away uh, but and that for instance single-use plastics should be generic across all the all the structures whether you're a family operation or you are a large yacht club on the other hand um, depending on the scale or size of the organization some things wouldn't be important for others for some and and and, and less so for others so you know we're looking at the supply chain uh, when we take out our wallet and when we order buy services whether it's um, uh, a glass of coke at the bar or whether it's a specific product that we bring in for our boat or vessel or service uh, we vote and so when I'm buying my glass of coke at the bar I don't want a straw I'm saying no um, and that sends a message that sends a strong message if I'm spending more money we're going to be asking for sustainable products because that very interaction of customer and uh, supplier is, um, you know, we have a lot of we have a lot of leverage. Our wallet has a lot of leverage, and so, as an organisation, when we're looking at cr uh, creating a sustainable, um, uh, you know, integrating sustainability, we need to look at every layer of our op of our of our operations and of what we control, whether we have financial control or operational control, and we can look at those in more and more detail to 
see how we can improve our overall footprints. Certainly when we think of greenhouse gas emissions, the use of diesel engines, uh, which is it's going to be a long time before uh, we transition uh, from diesel uh, engines, marine engines, to electrical or other renewable energy sources. But it is coming and there are good um, uh, options out there now for boat owners to look at. Uh, what was your biggest achievement that you were proud of in your sailing career? Oh, well, um, well, I think just the opportunity today to be here and to, I mean, every time I'm coming, come home and I'm involved in, a, in, a, in an event like this, it's just amazing to see the, the diversity and the level of sailing at home here in Ireland. And so for me, it's just a great opportunity to play this role. I believe it's a really important role and sustainability is, is, uh, is something that's been long overdue for integration into our sport. Um, but I guess, you know, having this opportunity is based on my previous experience with the Volvo Ocean Race. I've been involved with the Volvo Ocean Race now for six editions. Uh, I've sailed around the world ten times. Uh, I think, which is like sailing to the moon and back, and plus a bit more. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, it's, just, uh, it's just amazing to be able to use the sport and use our sport as a, as a vehicle and as a voice for, for sustainability. And there's a lot to be done, you know. And, you know, we have, a, as a sport, sailing has this image of green, blue, environmentally friendly. Um, but in reality, we're a sport which relies very heavy on technology, on the boats and the equipment we buy. And uh, just that has a, has a huge environmental footprint. Um, our role now is to reduce that footprint and aim and transition eventually towards a neutral uh, footprint, whether it's uh, greenhouse gas emissions, water consumption, um, or uh, you know, how, we, how, we, uh, how we process our resource recovery and our waste uh, treatment systems. So, you know, they're big. Um, lofty goals but it's much more accessible than I think most of us believe and you know when we think about operating as a carbon neutral sport this will be coming very quickly over the horizon as an objective from uh, uh, and I think we can be leaders here in Ireland. And after hearing Damien Foxhall's views about plastics as outlined to Irina Setakovic of Athlone Community Radio, I noted that the Estonian sailor Uku Randma, who finished third in the solo Golden Globe non-stop race around the world in older top yachts, had noted what he described as the huge amounts of rubbish he saw in the oceans of the world. The biggest pollution source, he said, was mainly plastic. And after rounding the Cape of Good Hope, he saw streams of it. Ryanair customers are helping to track whales for the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, which is matching humpback photos of whales seen in Irish waters to those photographed off the Netherlands, Norway, Iceland and Gibraltar, as Dr Simon Barrow, Chief Executive of the group, outlines now in a fascinating report. This morning I received the first photo ID image of a humpback whale from this year's whale breeding season at Boa Vista, an island in the Cape Verde archipelago. Yesterday we received an image of a humpback whale fluke from the Azores. Every time a humpback whale image is sent to the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, we think, is this the one? 
Will this be our first match between Ireland and a breeding ground? We have matched individual humpback whales from Ireland to the Netherlands, to Norway, to Iceland and Gibraltar, but never to a breeding ground. Well, not yet. The Irish Whale and Dolphin Group have been receiving humpback whale images, including flukes from IWDG members and the public since 1999. We've also gone out ourselves to collect images. We've created an Irish humpback whale catalogue with 92 individual whales recorded to date. A fantastic example of citizen science, where citizens collect data which are validated, logged and stored in a robust scientific manner by the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group and shared with colleagues in Ireland and worldwide. With funding from Ryanair customers under the Whale Track Island project, the IWDG now have the resources to improve our support for citizens out there collecting data, to explore parts of the ocean where citizens rarely visit, to see if there are new whales there which we haven't recorded yet. We can also ask harder questions such as what body condition are these whales in when they arrive in Irish waters and what is their condition after months of feeding in our rich inshore waters? What is their gender? Do they sing in Irish waters? Are they contaminated with persistent pollutants? Which genetic stock do they belong to? The big question is still where do humpback whales feeding in Irish waters breed? I still think it's West Africa. Maybe it's not Cape Verde. Maybe there are breeding areas along the West African coastline. Maybe both. We will persevere and try and locate them. We hope one day soon to get the funds and licences to deploy satellite tags on humpback and fin whales towards the end of their feeding season in Ireland to see where they migrate to. There is a long-held suggestion, first published in 1929, that there are unknown humpback whale breeding grounds to the south of Ireland. How far to the south of Ireland? We don't know. It's heartening in these days of data overload, there are some very basic things we are still seeking to find. It's no great surprise that many fundamental questions regarding ecosystem functioning and species life histories involve the marine environment. It's a difficult and challenging environment, and that's what makes it a fun place to work. This is Dr Simon Barrow of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group for This Island Nation. And now Justin Marr rounds up other maritime news from at home and abroad, and more about plastic, whales and a report from the Monterey Aquarium. The deadliest ocean rubbish for seabirds is balloons, according to a new study. Seabirds who ingested soft plastic balloon material were 32 times more likely to die than ingesting hard plastics, according to the collaborative study between the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies at the University of Tasmania and the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. Out of 1,700 dead seabirds, more than a quarter of the deaths were linked to eating plastic. Four in ten of those deaths were caused by soft debris, such as balloons, even though it made up only 5% of the inedible trash in the birds' stomachs. Seabirds frequently snap up floating litter because it looks like food, but once swallowed, it can obstruct the birds' gastrointestinal tract and cause them to starve to death. But the problem of plastics and how they affect marine life extends to the deep sea as well, as Kira Schlenning from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute explains. Degradation of man-made debris items in the deep sea is slow. Because there is no sunlight and very low oxygen, plastic could persist for centuries. 
As it breaks down over time, plastic fragments into very small particles that are more likely to be ingested by the tiny animals living on and within the sediment. So what can be done? Unmanaged trash can enter the ocean from land, even far inland, and can be carried long distances by local waterways and wind. The best solution is to reduce our reliance upon single-use throwaway items. Recycling, reusing, and properly disposing of trash items keeps litter from ever entering our ocean. Shipping and port activity increased by 3% in the last quarter of last year compared to the last quarter of 2017. The latest figures from the Irish Maritime Development Office's Ship Index show that the index reached 1,052 points in the final quarter of 2018. It's the fifth quarter in a row which has exceeded the baseline of 1,000 points. The majority of this increase is due to the increase of traffic from Ireland to Great Britain. Direct freight routes from Ireland to the EU actually declined by 4%. It's become more expensive to keep leisure craft in Cork Harbour. The port company has increased the mooring charges from €95 to €100 a year, while the cost of using the water of the harbour has also increased. Charges may vary depending on the length of a boat, but for a 33-foot yacht, the charge has also increased by €5 from €95 to €100. As a result, a boat and mooring can cost €200 a year or more in Cork Harbour. Mr Chair, I'd ask for unanimous consent to sound an air horn in committee. Uh, Is there objection to the gentleman's demonstration? This is a Natural Resources Subcommittee hearing of the House of Representatives in the United States about the impact of seismic air gun testing on right whales. Representative Joe Cunningham from South Carolina is questioning Chris Oliver, an assistant administrator for fisheries at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Was that disruptive, uh, Mr. Oliver? It was irritating, but I I didn't find it particularly disruptive. How much louder do you think seismic air gun blasting sounds than this air horn you just heard? hundred times? You think it's a thousand times louder? I doubt it. Doubt it. What if I were to tell you it's 16,000 times louder than what you just heard here? Can you see how that would be impactful on marine species and mammals? Right whales use echolocation to communicate, feed, mate and keep track of their babies. Before that moment at the hearing, Mr Oliver repeatedly testified that firing commercial air guns underwater every 10 seconds in search of oil and gas deposits over a period of months would have next to no effect on the endangered animals. He emphasised that studies have shown some adverse impacts, but that they are sub-lethal. But that testimony was followed by a testimony from Scott Krauss, a vice president and senior science advisor for the New England Aquarium. He testified that the tests will stress out an animal that's already struggling from lack of disease resistance and push them below any ability to reproduce. Five companies are awaiting final permits from the Interior Department to begin testing between New Jersey and Florida. An estimated 400 North Atlantic right whales hunted to the brink of extinction survive. (music) 
Marine photography is fascinating, capturing images at just the right time with sun and sea. How's it done? Is it easy or difficult? And does a maritime photographer have to take care near the water and get wet? All these questions I asked Cork photographer Rory O'Connor, a national award winner for his photography, at his exhibition in Mayfield Library. And I discovered that it was on holiday time visits to Yole, from where we broadcast his programme, a seaside town of course, that he began his interest in marine photography. Well, I suppose my interest in the sea started when I was very young. I used to go to Yall on my holidays. And uh, of course the, I saw the sea as a place of recreation and enjoyment. Over time, my interest in the sea changed, obviously, from swimming in it to photographing it. Um, I'm not 100% sure how it came about. I think it was just I studied um, some other photographers and looked at their work and thought, yeah, I, I would like to be able to try and do that. So I set about doing it. And the more I did it, the more interested I, I got in it. And, um, and I think it, it developed from there. You have a respect for the sea, obviously. I obviously have a huge respect for the sea, apart from the fact that I can swim and my father, God rest him, he taught me to swim very early on in life. I also did a bit of life-saving in my time, so I, I, I do have a huge respect for the sea. I've, I've seen people um, I've seen people come a cropper on occasions down the beach because they didn't pay proper attention. And I mean, the golden rule is you never turn your back on the sea, and it's as simple as that because you never know what's going to happen. So I have a huge respect for it, yeah. Maybe I have a, a little fear as well. Do you get wet when you're doing these phot- photographs of the sea? I, unfortunately, I do on occasions. I, I don't set out to get wet, but uh, it does happen. Um, and, uh, yeah, it does happen. But I'm, it's, it's a measured wetness, you know. I try and keep it below the hips if I can at all. Your photographs in this exhibition go from uh, right from Yall on the East Cork coastline around effectively the Kerry. Have you any favourites of the places you were taking these pictures? Um, I, I suppose I have. I, I, I love Dingle. Um, the, the interesting thing about photographing on the Dingle Peninsula is that the landscape plays a greater part in a greater contribution to the, to the overall composition whereas the beaches of East Cork, and, um, it's, it's more about the water, it's more about the rocks, and it's more about what's going on in the sea itself, whereas with, with the Dingle Peninsula, you can step back a little bit and, and include the, the beautiful landscape. So I suppose I, I, I favour Dingle um, in that regard, even though I don't get down there as often as I'd like. You know. Does it take long to do these photographs? Do you spend hours by the coast, by the... By the seashore? Um, I don't. Most of my photographs are taken in the evening. I'm a little bit lazy. I'm not a great fan of getting up at six or five in the morning to, to discover that it's raining and that there's no shot and I've got to go back to bed. So I take the easy option and I shoot mostly in the evenings. My shots are taken at or after sunset, generally speaking, when you have the nice light. I don't shoot in the middle of the day because the light is too harsh. Rory, there's one thing fascinating me about one of the photographs. Now, there are a lot of photographs, and a lot of them are fascinating. But this one, and you describe it as a photograph of a creepy tide. I I, I do. It was the first time I've ever seen, and the last time I've ever seen this, Tom. I was below in Ballycronine. It's a beach in East Cork, and the, the tide was coming in slowly, 
and the water started to creep along the sand like oil. It's the first time I've ever got a reflection of the clouds actually on the water. Normally you'll get it on the sand when the water retreats, but this is the first time I've ever seen this, and I thought it was fascinating. I took it, and I've uh, been looking to see it ever since, and I haven't seen it. It's a most unusual phenomenon. Finally, Rory, would you encourage people into photography of the sea? I, I would. I, I would encourage people into photography first and foremost. I mean, I, I took up the hobby seriously after I retired, and it's fabulous because um, it's something that you can do there's always a shot and, and, and even if you have a plan to go to the beach and if the weather goes against you, you can still take out your camera and you can maybe take a photograph in the house do a macro there's so much you can do to it but certainly I would love to see more, more seascape photographers because I think it's, a, it's, it's great to get out into the open we have a beautiful shoreline and we, we don't use it enough, and this is why I love photographing it, and I would love to get other people photographing it. Um, so I certainly would. I'm a member of Blarney Photography Club, and um, I would always encourage people to come with me on a photo shoot if they're interested, and I'll quite happily let them work away to see how I do things, and I work away and see how they do things, and I think that's important that we share the, share the knowledge, you know. And I suppose they need two things, respect for the sea and preparedness to get wet. Well, it's preparedness, for, for certainly preparedness to get wet and also to uh, study the weather, study the tides. It's very important to know the environment that you're likely to be going into. Um, shooting on an incoming tide is a pretty dangerous thing to do and if you're going to do it, you better be prepared for it. So, yeah, it's important. Health and safety is important in photography, in this type of photography. Rory O'Connor, whose photographic exhibition has been touring various locations and his encouragement to get involved in marine photography. Valencia Island in County Kerry has lost one of its greatest advocates, Anthony O'Connell. Tony, as he was popularly known, was a leading proponent of the island's campaign for UNESCO heritage status, built on its development of the transatlantic cable, wireless telegraphy and numerous other projects on the island. A man proud of what Valencia was achieving, and he will be very much missed. And in our next edition, what does it take to voyage in ocean waters around the entire island of Ireland in a boat more normally suited to being on the inland waterways? I think just the need for patience and not making rash decisions, being happy to say we're not comfortable with going out in these conditions and waiting for the opportune um, moments. We don't want to put ourselves in a position where we feel frightened and scared that is going to put us off so we we wait and we we try to be patient and wait for the weather opportunities a sensible approach and a fascinating story about the voyage of arthur which will be told to us by mary healy and paul scallon this island nation the maritime program is produced at cry 104 fm yall on the east cork coastline with production and technical supervision by Justin Marr and broadcast nationally through the community radio network around Ireland in Dublin on Near FM, Dublin City FM, Liffey Sound and Dublin South on Dundalk FM, Athlone Community Radio in Galway on Connemara Community Radio and Kinvara FM 
in Clare on Radio Kirkabashkeen and in Limerick on West Limerick 102 FM. And there are podcasts on iTunes, Mixcloud, Soundcloud, Spotify and the Marine Times website. And there's now a special edition for the visually impaired listeners through the National Council for the Blind. Wherever you've been listening, thank you for being part of the Maritime Community on Community Radio. And you can contact the programme on email to thisislandnation at gmail.com or by phone or text to 0872-555-197. That's email, thisislandnation at gmail.com, phone or text 0872-555-197. And This Island Nation blog is published on our Facebook page every weekend. Until our next programme, from me, Tom McSweeney, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>